Welcome back, everyone, to No Sleep Till Belmont. This is Arthur Staple, your faithful Islanders correspondent from The Athletic, and we're here to talk about the Islanders. We'll have Tyler Gilden, Long Island filmmaker who's made a very personal and important movie called The Starfish, uh, on to talk about that movie and his passionate Islanders fandom later on. But first, we had a little bit of news come out uh, earlier today via Bloomberg story um, that the uh, Onexim, it was run by uh, Mikhail Prokhorov, the former owner of the Nets and Barclays Center, who uh, leases the Coliseum from Nassau County, has decided to close it indefinitely uh, until other investors can be found uh, to take on the $100 million, I believe, in outstanding loans. Um, this is a big deal, I would imagine, uh, in normal times, even in these abnormal times, it's a big deal because the Islanders have no other place to play when when the building... Uh, when NHL teams are presumably going to be back in their own buildings for the 2021 season, whether that starts in December or January, uh, whether there are fans or no, uh, they still need a place to play for a year until Belmont is ready. So uh, my sense is the Islanders haven't issued a statement as of the time we're talking about this right now, Um, neither has Nassau County. So uh, this is more a story about uh, what are the options for the Islanders next season? Obviously, if things continue to progress for the resumption of this season with the plan that the league has in place for two hub cities, 24 playoff teams, the Islanders will be a part of it. Uh, It sounds like Las Vegas is going to be one city and probably the city that the Eastern Conference teams, including the Islanders, will be in. Uh, The other one sounds like they're trying to angle for Toronto to have the Western Conference teams be there. Um, But none of that relates to anything having to be in the Long Island area. So uh, the Coliseum is not open now. There's no events going on, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, So there is time to resolve this issue. It's June right now. Uh, If you're talking about uh, the next season starting in January, that's a few months to to sort things out. I would guess one of the options would be... um, the managing company of of the Coliseum surrenders the lease. Uh, the co- the county and the Islanders make some sort of arrangement to open it up for Islander games, whether there's a smaller capacity of fans that are socially distanced for next season, whether there are no fans, given we don't know what will be going on with the pandemic uh, next winter. Um, so that is possibly one option. Uh, the lease that the, the the agreement that the Islanders have um, with the with uh, the Barclays Center and Coliseum uh, overseers is they have to play in one place or the other um, before their their own arena is open. So that would logically tell you they should go back to Barclays uh, for next season. But after all the trouble the that Barclays had to put on a hockey game, the ice was never very good. Sight lines were bad. Nobody cares about the sight lines if there's not going to be any fans. They do need some place to play, but I'm not too sure that there's going to be ice in that arena ever again, considering how much expense that they laid out to have ice there. Uh, and if they don't have to pay for it with all arenas closed right now, um, I can't imagine that they will once again. But, uh, you know, that's not necessarily for me to say. Um, so that is obviously one obvious option, uh, one that I don't think the players and the Islanders will be very happy with because they don't love Barclays. I think the further distance to travel for games when there's still a pandemic and no vaccine, as we imagine it will be in the wintertime, um, would not be ideal. I think you probably want to stay closer to home and have fewer places to go in and out of. Um, There are certainly other arenas in the area. uh, And again, if we're talking about 
uh, a small percentage of a arena capacity because of social distancing. Um, does it really matter where they play in the area, whether it could be an agreement to play at Madison Square Garden, uh, Prudential Center? Um, maybe not. Maybe there's something to be worked out there. Um, and another option, again, if there's a redu- greatly reduced number of fans or no fans, is Northwell Health Ice Center. I don't think that would be a very pretty thing to see on on TV if there's broadcasts of the games, um, but they do have two rinks there. One of them has seating capacity for about 5,000 people, um, the Al Arbor rink there, which is where they hold uh, their intra-squad scrimmage um, in the summertime, for in the normal summertime for their prospect camp. Um, they've had a couple of uh, rookie scrimmages against Flyers prospects in that uh, Arbor rink, and it's been pretty full. And it gets uh, it gets nice and loud, certainly. Um, but again, I think maybe the broadcast infrastructure would be a difficult sell to put in there. So uh, there's a lot of options, just as there would be uh, if things were progressing the same way and the Coliseum were committed to staying open through, you know, through the end of this uh, pandemic. And um, I I don't think that anything has really been decided one way or the other. Uh, It's it's sort of, I guess, a unique development. There's certainly a genuine level of concern, I would imagine, for fans and people around the team about where the Islanders will play next season if this building can't be reopened or if it's gone bankrupt or if nobody wants to take charge and responsibility of it to keep it open. But, uh, but like I said, there's definitely time to figure out a solution. And I don't think the automatic response is, well, clearly they're going to play in Brooklyn. Um, and again, we, you know, this, the weird factor of whether there'll be fans or not means that uh, where they play may ultimately end up being rather moot because they just need some ice and a couple of locker rooms if it's going to be just the teams and the officials. Uh, so um, just another strange wrinkle in in a time of a lot of strange wrinkles about pro sports. You know, uh, I think there's a few more players that have uh, returned to play in the, uh, not play, but practice uh, at the Northwell Health Ice Center. Um, have cleared their their virus protocols. Um, I don't, I'm not not sure the Islanders haven't really released any information about players that have traveled back to the area to get ready to get back on the ice. Um, you know, I would imagine they're probably up to about ten or so guys in two different groups. They've got a couple goalies there, so we'll see. Um, you know, everything is still very much up in the air about whether they can even get to the training camps uh, in a few weeks, which would be for the Islanders would be at Northwell Health, at least for a couple weeks before they would head off to one of the hub cities uh, to get retested on a daily basis, play some exhibition games before their series with the Panthers got started for the qualifying round. Um, So to even think about anything beyond that is hard to wrap your head around. Um, so this is uh, this development with the Coliseum is is definitely uh, an interesting one, and we'll have to see where the talk goes. But for now, it's really just talk because, like I said, they've got a few months to to sort out whatever options they might have for next season, and we're just going to have to wait and see how the virus um, progresses in the next few months before we even know if there'll be fans in the building, and we have to really be concerned about what building that they're going to play in. We'll get to our guest in a minute, but first, a couple of ads. The first one is from Hawthorne. Remember, folks, smelling good is important. Hawthorne smells really good, and getting Hawthorne cologne is so easy. Father's Day is coming up. You might need a gift. What better than cologne? 
You take a quick two-minute quiz, and Hawthorne tells you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work and one for play. Totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. Check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co, and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co, and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. And we're also sponsored by Roman. If you were to guess, on average, how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com Belmont for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com Belmont for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, now we're joined uh, by a special guest of the show. We've got a uh, Big Islander fan who also uh, recently came out with a, a very moving and affecting movie uh, that's very personal to him called The Starfish. Uh, let's welcome Tyler Gilden to the show. Tyler, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good, Arthur. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's uh, it's an honor. Big fan of the <laughs> podcast. Uh, I listen all the time. I, I miss Mark uh, on it, too. I, I love your guys' uh, banter, but uh, you're still holding down the fort well, so I, I appreciate you having me on. Well, I appreciate you taking some time out. Uh, your movie, The Starfish, um, is uh, available now online and uh, for download. And just tell everybody out there uh, a little bit of what it's about and uh, how it all came to be for you. Sure. So, uh, you know, the starfish, uh, it's a story of my grandfather, uh, his life. So when he was 10 years old, along with his two sisters who were 12 and 14, uh, they were living in Germany and they were basically taken in by three separate non-Jewish families in Sweden uh, in order to escape Nazi Germany in 1939. And the film covers their journey through Europe and eventual arrival in New York and the lives they went on to lead. And my grandfather was fairly successful businessman on Long Island and he pretty much kept his past buried for about 50, 55 years until finally opening up about it. And uh, in 2001, uh, he and uh, my family traveled back to Sweden to reconnect with those families who had taken him in. So uh, yeah, you know, it's obviously a very personal story, but it's a human interest piece. And it seems to be something that's resonating with uh, people, whether they come from mixed backgrounds or just the idea of generosity and giving people an opportunity. You know, had it not been for those Swedish families, you know, I'm not here today. So, uh, you know, this was definitely a passion project for me. And uh, I'm glad people seem to, you know, really uh, enjoy uh, the film so far. Well, it is it is a great film. And uh, and your grandfather seemed like a very, very special guy. And when you were younger growing up, you know, what kind of grandfather was he? Was he a cuddly grandfather? Was he kind of a tough one? Or, you know, I know obviously he was ran an incredibly successful business, but how did you get him to start opening up about this incredible journey that he went on as a child? 
Um, so he, you know, he definitely wasn't a cuddly grandfather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't him. Uh, no, he was cute, but uh, probably not so cuddly. Uh, you know, he was somebody who, you know, my grandfather is just someone who was always focused on the future, focused on what's next, you know, building his business, taking care of his family, was not a nostalgic person. You know, he was not somebody who would dwell on his past. He wasn't a storyteller. So it really wasn't something that ever came up. And I think that it was just over time, really by the persistence of more of his children. You know, my aunt was very big on trying to find out more. And I think she's really the one who pried him open. So, you know, I, for the most of my life, knew he had some sort of unique, uh, you know, German background, and a little bit of Swedish, but I didn't really know all the pieces until I was older and uh, obviously doing this film and being able to sit down with him and really record him, you know, opened up about even more that, you know, it was really special for me to know now. Yeah. And, uh, and just seeing the footage of, uh, of his reunion, really, that was a long time in the making with his Swedish family. Um, that must've been uh, very affecting and, and just something that your whole family must've been able to enjoy. And then years later, you were able to turn it into this movie. It, uh, it, it must've been uh, an incredible process. Yeah, it's, it really is special to have, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, fortunately, I'm, I'm so lucky to have had as much footage as we had, you know, when the family went in 2001, you know, the, we, my, my aunt and one of my cousins had these big VHSC cameras <laughs> and they filmed. So it's, it's, you know, it's crazy that I have all this footage, but they had filmed. And then I have film from my great uncle, his eight millimeter footage that he had. Uh, I took that and we had photos from all the way from, you know, 19, you know, 39 through, uh, you know, most recent photos of, uh, you know, before he passed. So I had so much content to play with uh, that it really was, how do I weave the story around the visuals I have? And then where I didn't have visuals, I used some, you know, as you saw, black and white, you know, at, you know, silhouettes uh, for some of the more personal anecdotes that I felt like I didn't have the right imagery for. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of the pieces. It was just really kind of, you know, weaving together the most compelling story. And when the finished product came out, uh, it was it was really nice to see that uh, your grandfather got to got to see it uh, be played at a festival in Miami. Um, what was that like, and and how did he react to you putting this this story of his life together? You know, it's funny because he he would say to me throughout the process, like, "Is anybody really going to care?" You know, he, <laughs> he because he just felt like. You know, he wasn't that type of person who would feel like, oh, my story is important. You know, he really wasn't that type of guy. So to him, he'd always say, like, I understand we think this is interesting because it's our family, but will anybody else? And that did pose the challenge as me from a filmmaking standpoint, because the truth is, you know, the film, you know, the runtime is 40 minutes, but it could have been six hours. And to me, I would want to watch every minute of it because <laughs> it's my family. It's my grandfather. But how do I put together a film that someone like you who doesn't know my grandfather, someone who might not be Jewish, someone who maybe doesn't have an, you know, an immigrant background, somebody who is just wants to see a film can still enjoy it and, and connect with it. So that was a challenge for me. And I did a lot of small screen tests with a lot of different people of different backgrounds to, to make sure I was putting together the most compelling story. Uh, and yeah, it was it was really, really nice. And in, in Miami, we, we had a, a big screening at the Miami Jewish Film Festival and and he was there and a lot of his uh, his friends. We had two, two, two. Uh, big buses came from, you know, the, uh, the you know, he lives uh, in, you know, in Florida, they have, you know, big communities right. uh, that he lives in. And, you know, 
old folk communities for the most part. And we had two buses uh, taking them all the way to Miami. Uh, so it was really, it was really special that the turnout we had. Uh, and yeah, no, I'm very grateful that he got to see the film and got to also see other people appreciate the film uh, too, before he passed. Yeah. That uh, to me watching it, uh, it doesn't, it, you did the, you accomplished your goal. I think, I think people out there who, who want to watch it, um, for any reason, will will really enjoy it. And tra- and segueing quickly into what we talk about more on this show, how do the Islanders fit into this childhood of yours? Uh, growing up on Long Island, when did you become a fan? And uh, and what are your strongest memories of the Islanders from uh, from maybe some of the the bygone darker days of uh, of fifteen, twenty, twenty five years ago? Right. So you know, it's because it, it's funny because you know people always you know uh, assume because of the rich history Islanders have had with that dynasty that, you know, that a lot of Islander fans, you know, we've seen the glory days, but you know, they forget that it's been what 37 years or so that yeah. there's almost two full generations of, of fans who never saw any of the glory days and didn't see a lot of success for, for most of our lives, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, the, the team I remember, I think the earliest teams I remember are like 95, 96, 96, 97. You know, I was a big, you know, Palfi guy. I remember Palfi, Derek King, Smolinski, McCabe, you know, Rich Pilon, Webb. Like those were the guys I remember initially watching uh, and being big fans of. And yeah, I mean, I was always an Islander fan. You know, I'm a, I'm a Jets, Islanders, Mets fan. So I've had very, very little success in my 30 <laughs> years of life. Uh, but that's what makes you stronger, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. But, the biggest highlight for me in my childhood was definitely, uh, you know, most like probably anybody my age uh, or, or around that age of an Islander fan was, you know, the Sean Bates uh, penalty shot goal. I, I was fortunate enough to be at that game uh, with my dad. And I was actually, I played goalie growing up. Uh, so I was a big Curtis Joseph fan. Uh, just as a natural goalie, I always really liked him. Uh, but in that moment, I couldn't have wanted him to fail anymore. Uh, and I was very happy uh, when Sean Bates scored that. And, uh, that was incredible. And for a long period of time, that was the most positive Islander memory for me. But obviously, as years went on, they actually had some other uh, memorable moments. Uh, I'd say probably the other top moments that stand out, I think uh, the, the, I guess, air quotes, last game at the Coliseum against the Capitals, that game six was uh, was an incredible game. Uh, I remember that that Kuhlman goal, uh, you know, when basically uh, – you know, JT gets slammed into the boards and you think the play is kind of dead, but it's not dead. And then all of a sudden Kuhlman somehow gets the puck and scores. I think that was, I went nuts during that. Uh, Obviously beating the Panthers was, was incredible. Uh, Those are probably like three of like the top moments for me. Then of course, last year uh, I was at game one against uh, the Penguins and that Bailey goal uh, was awesome. Even though when I thought Kunakl scored, 10 seconds into the game. And I, I went crazy. I, 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 the chicken nuggets that I must've waited an hour online for and paid, you know, $50 for, I completely spilled my beer all over them. Uh, and, uh, they took the goal away. And of course I didn't get a replacement for my nuggets, but ultimately they won that game. So, uh, I was very happy. Um, when you speak about those kind of the late nineties, the, the very, the very barren years kind of between the surprise of 93 and Al Arbor retiring and then, you know, waiting until Charles Wong took over the team and they started to spend a little more money in the early 2000s. What was the Coliseum like back then? I mean, as a kid, maybe your memories are a little bit, a little bit different than if you'd been an adult, but, uh, but it, it feels to me 
um, talking to Islander fans about that time, kind of the way, uh, you know, a, a, a Met fan might feel about, uh, you know, the maybe the, the mid 2010s with not that many fans in the stands or, or Jets games in the in the 90s when they were kind of going through their low period. Uh, what what was it like to be an Islander, to be a fan of a team that really kind of had no hope from the beginning of a lot of those seasons? Yeah, well, no, I mean, it was nice because you'd go to a game and like you were one fifth of the entire crowd. So you <laughs> felt really important. Like if you yelled something, everybody heard you. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, you see, obviously we look at the Coliseum with fond memories because when that place is rocking, that place is rocking. But when that place is empty, <laughs> that place was empty. Yeah. Uh, and there was definitely games that I went to where they had very low teens numbers there. And, you know, it has nothing to do with the fan base. The fan base is strong. The product was pretty poor for a good period of time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even, but even when the games were, you know, a little crowd, it was always like the, you know, just like the team, the little crowd that could and would still make, you know, whatever noise it could. And obviously the way that the, that stadium uh, was built and you were just on top of the ice. Uh, but yeah, I used to go uh, with my friends all the time, you know, none of, you know, most of my immediate friends growing up uh, were not Islander fans uh, really weren't hockey fans, but all are like default Islander fans because of me. So, mm-hmm. cause I would take them to games over the years. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I had a couple of birthday parties at Islander games. I think I rode the Zamboni once at a, a birthday party. That was, mm-hmm. uh, that was cool. And then they take you down to the, I, there's some, I guess on lower, lower level, they have offices. I remember we had like cake down there. And I think I got a signed stick by who, I don't even know who, maybe Roman Hammerlick. I'm not sure who signed the stick. Okay. That's a good uh, one. No, Roman, yeah. I mean, actually, Roman Hamerlick sounds like it was too good. I, I feel like it was not someone as good as Hamerlick. I think it was somebody else. I'm, I'm blanking on who it was. Uh, maybe Karatanov, maybe? I'm, I'm blanking on who's, who wow. would have signed the stick. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure who it was, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that much value because I can't remember who it was. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I always, I just, I was always such a big Islander fan. It was always my number one team of the Jets, Islanders, and Mets. Um, I used to do with, uh, one of my friends who was a Ranger fan in middle school. We used to do whenever the Islanders and Rangers played head to head, the loser had to wear the other team's jersey to school the next day. And that was like, that was the worst. In middle school, <laughs> if I had to wear a, a Ranger jersey to school, like that, that was tough. Uh, but, you know, that was, but that was fun. I, you know, I was always, I was always very into it. And uh, in distributing your movie and, and getting some more notice for it, have you found some far flung Islander fans uh, in that? movie distributing world or in the in the world of uh of being a a, you know media producer um when they see your hat in the in the some of the uh the clips of the movie do people say islanders or or do you kind of get uh is there a secret society in the entertainment world of islander fans that we just don't know about (laughs) uh you know i i have to say i I took a piece out of you know uh, Kevin Connolly's book uh, on the, you know, in, in Entourage when you'd constantly see him flashing the Islander uh, stuff. But to be honest, I, I, I do that on a lot of my my shoots. Uh, I will very low key have like an, I mean, I don't know if, I, I'm assuming the Islanders are not going to come sue me because uh, if anything, it's positive press for them. I think it, I think uh, it helps. I think it helps. Yeah. It, it certainly can't hurt them. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, you know, 
It's funny. Sometimes it's intentional and other times I'm just literally always wearing an Islander hat. So, so, you know, I even, uh, you know, I did the, I did the Newsday. Newsday had an article with me and they wanted to come out here and do a photo shoot. And originally I wasn't wearing a hat, but my hair is very much long and awkward quarantine hair. Uh, and then I put on the Islander hat for like two pictures and I had no hat for maybe what's called like 20 pictures. But of course they chose the picture with the Islander hat. And then, you know, even like my friends are like, dude, what are you wearing an Islander hat in every piece of press you do? And I was like, I swear that was just an option. That was the alternative option. Uh, but they went with that one. Uh, but yeah, no, whenever, you know, the thing about Islander fans though, is because it's such a, it's such a, not, not that it's small, but it's such like a, a mighty passionate crew that unlike other sports I'm, I'm a fan of, when I see another person who's an Islander fan or wearing an Islander hat, we automatically will get along and click where if someone's wearing a Mets hat or Jets hat, you know, yeah, maybe I'll say what's up, but it's not so instant. But for whatever reason, especially living in Manhattan, where it's not so Islander, uh, you know, driven all the time, you see somebody in an Islander hat or, or gear or mention it, it's just, it's immediate conversation. Uh, and it's something that I don't have with necessarily any of my other teams. Uh, well, having covered this team for a long time, I can heartily agree with you about that, that uh, you are a, a small but dedicated group. So um, once again, Tyler Gilden, whose movie The Starfish is available for download, uh, a very personal uh, project and a very important one and really enjoyable to watch. So uh, thanks for coming on, Tyler, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Arthur. I appreciate uh, everything you do. And uh, yeah, you know, I just like we love other Islander fans. We love our, our media coverage. You know, the, the people who are willing to talk about the team, we're always a big fan of them. Uh, so I've appreciated your coverage uh, over the years and to see it really uh, flourish at the Athletics. has been awesome. Thanks so much. And thanks to everybody for listening. This is No Sleep Till Belmont, your Islanders podcast from The Athletic. We'll be back with you again next week. Thanks a lot. 